This is Hotspots H2O from Circle of Blue's award-winning team of journalists, where each week we examine regions, populations, and countries that are at most risk from water-related stresses. I'm J. Carl Ganter. With stories from around the world, we're revealing the challenges that individuals confront and the solutions they discover as they strive to build resilient communities in the face of the fast-growing competition between water, food, and energy in a changing climate. Welcome to Hotspots H2O. I'm Brett Walton, a Circle of Blue reporter. Today I'm speaking with Jeremy Schmidt, a lecturer in the Department of Geography at Durham University. He's also the author of a new book on the history of America's water management philosophy, which is being published next month. The book is called Water, Abundance, Scarcity, and Security in the Age of Humanity. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Reading through the book, I was reminded of an old joke, uh, one that the author David Foster Wallace has perhaps taken ownership of. Joke goes like this. So one day, two fish were swimming through the river. Uh, an older fish coming from the opposite direction approaches the two youngsters. Beautiful day, the older fish says. How's the water? Uh, the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then one turns to the other. What the hell is water? He says. <laughs> uh, so for your book, I guess the question would be, what the hell is water management? That's a, you know, a big question that you go into through hundreds of pages. I guess to get there, first, why did you take on a project like this? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I, and I really get a kick out of that joke every time I hear it. The main reason that got me thinking about this project is that first, on the one hand, you know, if we do surveys and we talk to people, it's universal that people really care deeply about water, but it's much less prominent that people know where their ideas about water actually came from. And so what I was really interested in is trying to understand where our ideas about water management came from and how those ideas may be subtly shaping and explicitly informing our policies in ways that may contribute to the problems that we're actually trying to solve. So one of the important things that you mark is this transition from thinking about water to water as a resource. Can you kind of trace briefly how that shift happened and, and where you trace it to? Yeah, sure. It's one, one of the more surprising things, I think, is that most people don't think about understanding water as a resource as some sort of a philosophical choice. It's sort of, a, instead, it's a common sense way of thinking about water. It's just obviously a resource. But in fact, water has only been a resource in the United States since the early 20th century. Before that, Water was certainly used and, of course, very important to economies and cities and agriculture and everything else. But it wasn't considered a resource in the modern sense, which is the sense that we could control and manage water in a way to harness its benefits for the maximum good for society. That idea is much more recent, and that's the idea that I'm more interested in the book. And so what are the implications then of the shift to thinking about water as a resource? Well, one of the main implications is that water, thinking about water as a resource, is thinking about water as a resource for whom. And what I'm interested in in the book is that early in the 20th century and in the late 19th century, then many people in America and prominent figures that people familiar with the water stories uh, would be well known to, people like uh, Major John Wesley Powell and leaders in the conservation movement under Teddy Roosevelt, they're all very concerned that the state needed to take a much more active role in managing water and managing natural resources more generally. And one of the implications of uh, the way that they set about to start conserving and managing natural resources is that they, they made a series of arguments about why water 
water and other resources should be managed in a particular way. And the particular way that they envisioned this came through a combination of geology. John Wesley Powell was, of course, a geologist. And this geological idea combined with early notions of anthropology. What many people don't know is that John Wesley Powell was also the first director of the U.S. Bureau of Ethnology, which conducted many of the studies of Native Americans in the 1890s. And this combination of geology and anthropology was used to position the United States as unique among nations, especially to forward the idea that the U.S. principles for managing water were the best, not just because they worked for the United States, but because they were geologically the best. So the argument was that conservation through American water management was sort of the apex of evolution. And it was, a, it was a surprising view to strike upon, but as it turns out, this view was very carefully developed by John Wesley Powell's key protege, someone named William John McGee. And something hard to argue against if you're arguing that this is the natural course of how things ought to be managed. Yeah, and this is part of what made the notion that water resources are sort of the natural default such an easy thing to fall into the sort of common sense vernacular. It was, a, it was an argument that really naturalized a certain way of thinking so that other ways of thinking about water have really looked either metaphysical at worst or just less developed when we look at other systems of governance or systems of social order when it comes to managing water, particularly non-American ones. Yeah, I want to get into that a bit later about alternate views, but first I want to unpack this common sense view a bit. The subtitle of your book is Abundance, Scarcity, and Security in the Age of Humanity. And you go to this frequently, the the ideas, the concepts of abundance, scarcity, and security as being kind of the guiding lights for water management, not, not only in the U.S., but globally today. You think there's a problem with this, right, that it's not the whole picture or that uh, it's guiding our thinking in ways that it might not be? Well, I think one of the the most interesting things is that when the early ideas around water management in the United States were being developed, they were being developed in a way to reject older ideas. So they were rejecting ideas that water was just freely given from the gods or that it was subject to purely natural laws or something like that. And by rejecting these old metaphysical ideas in favor of an evolutionary view, what I argue in the book is that the process of modern water governance really starts to create its own narrative about how water's abundance and how water security and how water scarcity all should be managed. And early on, one of the one of the most interesting elements of the book that I think is one of the most interesting elements, at least, I don't want to bias anybody too much. But uh, when I what I think is interesting is that the early notions of of water abundance was really tied to this geological view, where water was seen not as some sort of passive object on the earth, but actually key to planetary evolution. In fact, both John Wesley Powell and William McGee thought that water was the key agent in in the whole Earth system. And because water had this very active role in shaping the planet and in shaping biological life from cells through to societies, they thought that managing it was of utmost importance because water was the key to unlocking an abundance, and an abundance specifically for American liberal society. And so Starting with this idea of how water can be used to create abundance for liberal societies, I trace out how the actual implementation of that idea through trying to create, use water to create abundance through big infrastructure projects like large dams and so on, later on came to be seen as actually a problem of generating scarcity in particular ways. 
And so the, the upshot, of course, was that when scarcity gets very intense, there's the potential for conflict or the worry that we're undermining the conditions for the success of our own societies, which leads to security concerns. So really what I keep going back to in this narrative of abundance, scarcity, and security are the different moments through which this management philosophy keeps pace with the development of liberal societies through the 20th century. And I, and I use it in the global sense because American water management has been very influential globally. And so this, this management philosophy has not only been used to explain American trajectory in water policy, it's been used in Brazil, in Canada, where I'm from, in Israel, Australia, and many other places. And so trying to get a grip with this narrative is what I am after in the book, in part to show that this narrative, although it started out by rejecting older metaphysical ideas, is nevertheless a cultural narrative of its own. It's a narrative that has deep cultural and political values. Do you think it's a narrative that's, that's wrong in some way or needs to be supported by other, other views? Well, I don't really think that any narrative can be wrong exactly. Narratives serve different sorts of functions. And this narrative has certainly served plenty of functions for increasing the amount of water available for many important things like agriculture and uh, urban developments and those sorts of things. But it has had both unintended and unjust effects. So the extension of any particular story or global narrative about water works to the disadvantage of other narratives, of other ways of understanding water, particularly in the instance of the United States. This narrative has virtually excluded the ways in which Native Americans might manage water. Is the view of abundance, scarcity, security, and an alternate view of management, are they in conflict or can one be held while also espousing a different view of how water should be managed? I think they could probably be held. The key point, and I think the key tension that the book tries to press upon, is that if we start to see this narrative as one cultural narrative, then it starts to just look more relative and less absolute than other ones. So it certainly can be held, and I'm not, not suggesting that people abandon this narrative. It certainly is used for all sorts of policy purposes and for explaining water challenges to people who are new to the topic. But at the same time, it's just one story about water, a very powerful one, but certainly not the only one. So we can manage water in other ways, but that requires making space for those ways within a broader landscape of governance and policy. And so for making space for other ways, do you see this happening in beneficial ways in certain places of the world? I guess, how do we make room for those alternate philosophies or alternate ways of looking at management? Yeah, that's a great question. I think this is one of the key challenges for the 21st century is trying to understand the deep rooted nature of the values that are taken as objective in things like water management today and seeing that these normative judgments are are the sorts of judgments that we need to question quite deeply. And I think there are certainly tensions, but also possibilities with creating new forms of water management. Of course, they might not look like what we call water management today. They could look very different. They could look like water flowing freely down a river with very little being done to it. And that could certainly count as a way of, quote unquote, managing water. So the, the requirement, of course, would be that a certain amount of power that has been claimed through this narrative is relinquished. 
So assigning rights to those who have historically been marginalized would be an important first step. Places in, in New Zealand where they have recognized uh, indigenous legal orders and through the recognition of indigenous legal orders have recognized rights to rivers and recognize rivers as having legal standing within those indigenous orders. Those are the sorts of possibilities that will need to be more fully explored. It seems like in recent years, there's been certainly the emergence of different narratives with, especially with human right to water uh, passing through the UN and some of the cases you mentioned in New Zealand is that the dominant idea of abundance, scarcity and security is being challenged in new ways. Yeah, I think the one of the things that the book identifies is that this narrative is in a, in a certain sense reaching its limits. And so the what started out as an early merger between geology and anthropology after the course of water management through the 20th century that I document in the book has really led to along with other forms of natural resource management that, is, that have accelerated human use of the earth system has really led to another convergence of geology and humanity today in conversations that humans are a new kind of geological force on the planet and that we might even be in a new geological epoch called the Anthropocene. Here I think we see that the, the particular intersections of, again, water and geology and humanity force these sorts of political questions because they force questions around who do we think of when we say that humanity is a geological agent once we start to recognize that the narratives through which we've managed water and other resources are really the narratives of a dominant culture or a set of dominant cultural groups. Then what comes next? It seems like the narrative here is is similar to how we have designed water and energy and all these big systems that underpinned 20th century growth as big central monolithic entities that are now kind of fracturing apart into smaller rooftop solar and decentralized water systems where you have lots more local uh, ideas about management and gathering of, of resources or needs for life. Are those types of Is the relocalization of water possible to come out of this big central narrative? I think it's certainly possible. And I think there's lots of innovation in the ways that people are trying to deal with the outcomes of this broader uh, trajectory that we find ourselves on. But I think also that one thing I try to do in the book is I try to diagnose that the problems that we have run much deeper than just technical fixes. They run much deeper than just, you know, incremental adjustments to technology or retrofitting uh, plants or infrastructure to make them more efficient and so on. They really run to a core set of value judgments and cultural ideas about the superiority of one cultural way of thinking about water. And that's what I'm interested in diagnosing is the need to rethink that view of water and the need to think of water as other than a resource, to challenge this sort of common sense view and to start conversations about new ways of thinking about water entirely. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, Today I've been speaking with Jeremy Schmidt, a lecturer in the Department of Geography at Durham University and the author of an upcoming book called Water, Abundance, Scarcity, and Security in the Age of Humanity. You've been listening to Hotspots H2O. You can listen to this episode and follow Circle of Blue's other reporting at circleofblue.org. This has been another installment of Hotspots H2O. Read more of Circle of Blue's frontline coverage of the fast-changing competition between water, food, and energy at circleofblue.org. Thanks for joining us. I'm J. Carl Ganter.